Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 103 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we'll feature a discussion about our local music scene, and we'll listen to three of our favorite musicians who will perform a selection of seasonal favorites. Because it's October, we have an interview with a paranormal researcher who found a skeleton while doing his work. Rick Fedick, Pam Rader, and Dave Seastrom each have a few words to say about life as we know it. And we have another interview about Bigfoot. Our first segment begins with a discussion about our music scene with Chuck Wills, Jim Lemon, and Rick Fedig. Then we have an interview with paranormal researcher Matthew Jackson. We'll close this section with Chris Wolf's song, Ballad of Bell Gunness. Say, got a cast iron core and old brick strutting. Think of power is just a little like, but couldn't put them down. If you shot them with a 44. The music scene in Brown County has been on an upswing for quite a few years, affording this program with a long list of musical guests, both local and regional. I'm Chuck Wills here with Jim Lemon and Rick Fedig. Hey, guys. How's Hi. it going? And in lieu of our usual musician interview, we're going to talk about what's happening locally since things seem to be carefully opening back up from the global pandemic. So traditionally, we've had a number of venues in town where you could find live music nearly any night of the week. And that came to a grinding halt in March, then transitioned to mostly outdoor music over the summer. So let's talk about some of the places you can catch an act this fall and some of the performers that we're able to see locally. Rick, I know that you've always been really involved with uh, Brown County Inn and the open mic nights. So let's start by talking about open mic nights. Are, are there any of those happening right now? Ross Benton did, did one where they actually changed the uh, clientele three or four times the other night at the winery, Country Heritage. Uh, but the um, Brown County Inn, they've moved to the back deck and have solos or duos out there. I had Reuben Guthrie join me the other night. So we were six feet apart from each other, and we each had our own mic. And So you actually played at yes. BCI the other night? Yes. They're having music on uh, Wednesdays, and then they usually have a wedding on the weekend. So whichever night they don't have a wedding, 
they'll have music. So it's not always Friday. Uh, yeah, they're trying to hang in there and do what they can. Okay. Yeah, it, it seems like outdoors is probably the way things are going to continue until it just gets too cold. And then Hard Truth Hills, yeah. they're uh, doing pretty well out there. They've, they've put a bunch of speakers up in their trees, so the stage doesn't seem quite as distant on the balcony. So that's helped out quite a bit there. But Good. yeah, that, that's all outside. So, well, speaking of outside, Jim, I know that you're pretty close with our buddy Hondo. And uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what's been going on with Hondo's house concerts? Well, you know, he was talking about it uh, just this last weekend. Uh, he had Silver Sparrow, and they opened for the High Test String Band, which is an Illinois band over from Effingham, Illinois. They're, like all musicians, um, shut down pretty much. And so when Hondo threw them a lifeline, they were like, sure, we'll drive over for that. Nice. Really good. And the lead singer and the lead guitar players got several albums out. So now Hondo's been doing this at this current house last three summers. Uh, he's got it all set up so that people have their own squares of about, I don't know, 25 square feet. You're talking there. about the audience is sequestered in their own grid. Correct. The yard, yeah. he's got a very yeah. big yard. It's laid out with like paint, like you would see on a football field. And your square is your square. And you and your wife, or if you have a couple of kids or a dog, you can go into your square and stay there and don't encroach. And there are paths down the middle. And he's brought in a, a brand spanking new porta potty. And there's a huge fire circle in the middle. And, uh, I mean, he's, he's killing, he's putting them on almost yeah. weekly. So, um, we've seen people like Tim Tryon and Sarah Flint, Frank Jones, and the multiple iterations of musicians he plays with. He's a guy that you play with, Chuck. Uh, Busman's Holiday, Otto and the Moaners, Chris Dollar, Cade Puckett, Chris Wolf. These are not lightweights. These are people that are, are lifers as musicians. And so Hondo puts on a wonderful night of music when that happens. Well, he's really put an amazing amount of effort into his house concert, which we should mention, it's invitation only. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to know somebody that knows somebody to get in there. But when you do, it's got a stage with lights and a PA system, and it's really enjoyable for the crowd. I, I like going out there and just hanging out in a safe, socially distant experience. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's working his, his tail off to make this happen, but it's, it's a yeah. brilliant concept and very well run. Uh, another great outdoor venue is actually Story Inn. And uh, I know that two guys that we've had on the show somewhat recently, well, Rich Hardesty plays there a lot, and so does Will Scott. It's a wonderful outdoor space, whether it's at their little uh, cafe area in back or the big barn way out yep. back. Yep. And uh, wh what a great spot to a show, especially as the leaves start to change. Yeah, nice drive out there. Well, you know, another venue that has started to open up as an indoor venue is the, the Brown County Playhouse. They've had some regional acts coming for music, but they've also been doing the old-time radio-style theater. And I think they're going to continue doing that up through Christmas. It, not outside, but they have been enforcing, you know, the rules on social distance and masks and so forth. So even though you're indoors, it is a small crowd, and you really feel pretty safe when you're in there. Yep. Yep. And, and they have a fully functional uh, libations bar at the, the back. <laughs> of the yeah, very important. 
absolutely <laughs> is. Well, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but um, Cindy Steele is starting to have uh, jams out at her place. She has a small little barn there, and they're going to put a wood stove in it. And in lieu of the old, uh, wasn't it, Otis, they all went out to his house and played in the garage. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's where Cindy got started was hanging out at Otis's yeah. place. Well, actually, yeah. a lot of the Brown County musicians can claim their start in Otis's garage. So, well, I'm, yeah. glad, to, I'm yeah. glad to hear that she's continuing that tradition. That's great. Yeah. Well, from the sound of it, I'd say music is alive and well in Brown County. You just have to maybe look a little off the beaten path or go outdoors to hear what's going on. We'll see how it goes as the weather uh, gets a little bit chillier, but hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, I won't make any prediction for what is going to happen this winter. So maybe that's encouragement for everybody to get out and make the most of it right now while the weather's nice. Yeah, good point. All right, guys, we're going to be listening to some artists that we've had on the show and maybe some deeper cuts that you haven't heard before. Hard times will change your pattern. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's small engine repair. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's guns, knives, bait and tackle, candy, cigarettes, and tobacco. We need a line for your upright base, fresh, we sharpen lawnmower blades. Got an old beat up wooden canoe, spark plugs, new and used. 22 long rifle shells, bunch of stuff in the weeds that ain't for sale. Malabars, bows and arrows, chainsaws, and one rusty wheelbarrow. DVDs and VHS, Charlie Bailey. He's the best sister. We can rewind. Charlie Bailey's small engine repair. We have back with us Matthew Jackson, who you may remember from the Halloween special of 2019, talking about all things paranormal. Welcome back to the show, Matthew. Hey, thanks for having me. This is Chuck Wills, and Dave is with us. Hi there. Glad to be aboard. Since uh, Halloween is back upon us, we wanted to have you back because we've heard rumor that you have a skeleton in your closet, literally. Literally, I do. I actually have a human skeleton. Well, not everybody can say that. <laughs> well, everyone that's alive technically can. You can say you have one, but... <laughs> yeah. You have a real human skeleton. It sounds like there's a, a story about how you came to have this. Can you kind of give us the background? Yeah, I can. It actually starts back about 11 years ago. I was working in a place downtown Columbus that is a historic building on Washington Street on the sixth block. And it seems like anyone who ever spent any time actually working in that building had their own little ghost story, you know, talking about the, the building being haunted and so forth. And so in my discussions of other people who worked in the building and other businesses, our next door neighbor, I happened to ask him if his employees or if he ever had any experiences of anything strange happening in the building. And he came back with, well, if you saw what was upstairs of MySpace, you would definitely uh, wouldn't be surprised that odd things may occur. He basically went on to say that his half of the building is owned by a very old uh, secret society, one of those fraternal lodges that at one time they were pretty prominent, but they've kind of uh, faded away. They're called the Knights of Pythias. And they're kind of like, you know, the Masons or the Odd Fellows. Anyway, he basically went on to say that even though the National Charter still owned his half of the building and he paid his rent to them, that all the local members had basically gotten too old to make the climb up the staircase. And uh, he hadn't seen anyone around there for years. 
And he asked me if I wanted to go upstairs and check it out. And of course, me being the fool that I am, I took the key and went up there. And lo and behold, this room that I came across was set up kind of like a temple. And there was like a, a circle of chairs and there was an altar and like a throne, swords, beds of nails, you name it. And also in the middle of all this was a casket with a real articulated human skeleton that they used as part of their rituals. So I've known that the skeleton was up there for about 11 years. And recently, uh, the guy who let me up there, he bought the building. He reached out. He found a group of Pythias that still meet up in the state of Indiana. And he contacted them to see if they wanted to come down and maybe take some of those items with them. And a few guys did. They came. They loaded a few things up. But they left the skeleton and you would think as a secret society, if there was ever a secret that you might want to keep close to your, your, yourself, that would be the fact that you used uh, human skeletons in your rituals. But they said that they no longer use stuff like that and they left it there. He really didn't know what to do with it. And me just kind of being like a you know resident weirdo. I don't know if I'm uh, flattered that he thought of me or if I should take it as an insult, but I was given the opportunity to actually acquire the skeleton. Amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> so I've got two questions. Yeah. Uh, one, how does a group like them get a skeleton to begin with? And then, of course, two, what are you going to do with a skeleton, you know, beyond the cool factor of having your own skeleton? <laughs> that That's the funny part. Ethically, after doing research into how these groups would have acquired a human skeleton like this, no matter how you look at it, it's fairly disturbing. I estimate that that temple probably been up in that space at least since 1907. And back then, it was relatively easy to acquire human remains. There were actually catalogs where you could just order these things and they would provide skeletons to medical people, to you know, classrooms, and also to these fraternal lodges. But the way that they got the skeletons, uh, most of the time usually involved poor people who died and were left unclaimed. There's also a lot of grave robbing that went on back then. And so it was really kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around that this was somebody's loved one. This was somebody's child who ultimately became a prop with or without consent <laughs> for, uh, you know, a strange group of people who, for whatever meaning they had behind their rituals, which is still kind of up in the air, uh, would use that just for their entertainment. Really leaves me with kind of an uncomfortable feeling uh, about the whole, the whole scenario. You know, there's not a, a real positive way of looking at it. But my, my plan as of right now is I've been talking to the University of Indianapolis, one of the professors up there that run the forensics department. She's basically offered if I would donate the skeleton to the school that they would curate it for me and then do a full workup study on it. Uh, they, they doubt that there's any viable DNA that would allow them to maybe try to see who this person was or find its descendants. But they're confident they could determine the age, the race, the sex, things like that. And, and there might be a clue there as far as like how maybe the person died. There might be some telltale sign there. So basically, they're going to be looking for like knife cuts on the bones or, um, uh, you know, burn marks or whatever. I mean, obviously, this skeleton was never made into the soup. Um, right. But they did something. I mean, it's, you know, um, the illustrations on your website showed. Uh, swords and some kind of decorative situation that maybe invoked in spirits or who knows what they were doing, right? 
Yeah, I, I think a lot of it had to do with some hazing type rituals as far as they would lead like new members in as part of their almost like swearing in. They would have them come in blindfolded and have them kneel in front of the coffin and hold on to the bones and repeat all these oaths. You know, they were swearing the group secrets until their death, until their body would fill one of those boxes, so to speak. And, you know, basically you go and take the, the group secrets to their grave. And if there's any more like, you know, arcane or dark secrets that the group really uh, held on to that I, I've not figured out yet. So for our uh, listeners that, that haven't checked it out, all of this is on your website, which is paraholics.com. Yeah. The, uh, the posting on that is the bones of secret societies. That talks about your interest in bones from your childhood on up to finding the skeleton, the video that you guys are talking about, and then further information about the building and uh, the fraternal order as well. Yeah. And the interesting thing, too, to find out that that building was built on an old cemetery. I mean, there's just so many layers to that, that city block in Columbus that many people are not aware of. So it's interesting history. Okay, just out of curiosity, you have the skeleton now. I mean, is it in your house? Yes, yeah, it is. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's not yeah. creepy. Well, I guess if I really thought about it, it it is kind of creepy. But uh, I, I don't look at him at this point as or her as a a permanent resident. So I I, I like to think that this period of time uh, that I'm I'm just providing a uh, a path to a, a better resolution for this poor person. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us again and bringing us this great skeleton story. Well, this has been really interesting. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And for our listeners, please tune in to our upcoming Halloween special podcast, where we will air more of this interview with Matthew Jackson.
So move to Indiana with this well-to-do woman But sell everything you own Yeah, bring the cash for everything you own One night there was a horrible fire pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. We'll begin segment two with Rick Fedig's nod to our old friend Chris Curtin as we hear Rick's take on electile dysfunction. Pam Rader has an essay called Disease and Dis-Ease, and we'll close with Joe Bollinger's song, Werewolf. Greetings to all, ladies, gentlemen. There's a sensitive and serious topic that has been coming to the forefront of our attention in recent years. The topic is... ED. Yes, there I said it, ED. Electoral dysfunction. When the electoral process becomes impaired, when it fails to represent the choices of the people, when our electoral process has been, is, or could be made unable to perform its designed purpose for our country. In the days of yesteryear, as America was coming to age, only white male landowners, the freeholders, could vote. The country is made up of territory or land, so landowners should be the ones to run the country. That seemed feasible and sensible at the time. Well, a few other social issues came up, and it was decided that all white males should be able to vote. The blacks didn't count because... They were still slaves and considered subhuman, and women were just an extension of their husbands' wishes. Sometime after the slaves were freed, and I use that term loosely, the adult black men were allowed to vote. After all, they now had a mule and a piece of property. Then, well, okay, 
maybe women might have something to say about how to run the country. After all, they help with the families and they make the big decisions like what's for supper. Now, that was actually a hard-fought victory by the women of our country. And Pam Rader has a piece on Brown County Hour, episode number 95, discussing the 100th anniversary of a women's right to vote. Then finally, if we can send kids off to fight and die for our country, maybe we should let them have a say about things. A vote. So at that point, young men and women could vote at the age of 18. Now let's think for a minute. A baby is not considered dysfunctional because it can't walk or talk, because it can't do math or drive in the legal sense, or create music or art. Maybe each of the aforementioned stages were steps in eliminating dysfunction, or perhaps as Americans, we've just been going through some growing pains. But at a certain age, 18 legally, we need to think about what we are going to do with the rest of our lives and our democracy. This all boils down to voting. Voting for people you believe in, people you trust to move America forward. Life is changing rapidly. I remember getting our first TV, and now we have the interweb where we can video conference each other by pushing one or two buttons on our phones or computers. In recent years, in many ways, it has become increasingly harder to vote. My attention was sparked when needing an ID to vote became an issue. It seemed rather spur of the moment, but many states started requiring IDs to vote. I carry my driver's license, but some do not. Some don't have a driver's license because they don't drive. My grandma never did have a driver's license. When people showed up to vote, surprise, they were rejected and turned away because of no ID, even after voting for all of their lives. This is dysfunctional. I learned a long time ago, if you want people to do a certain thing, make it the easiest thing for them to do. Make it easy to vote. Help them get the ID. Don't surprise them and send them the way. The states determine how their prospective elections should be handled, but the feds set the overriding standards. Many states are eliminating the number of places one can go vote. Recently, the United States Postal Service has been ordered to dismantle machinery that sorts and separates thousands of pieces of mail daily, slowing down the mailing process. Countless drop boxes on local street corners have been removed. Overtime for postal workers has been seriously stifled. Trucks are leaving half empty because of the clock, not efficiency and productivity. How might this affect voting by mail? Many things have been rising to the forefront of our attention that is causing our electoral process to become dysfunctional. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. America is an experiment, a work in progress. Let's strive to make it more and more perfect with justice for all, peace and prosperity for all, safe and secure, united together as one America, a leader among nations. Please make sure you vote 
and make sure Grandma gets the job done also. This is Rick Fettig with the Brown County Hour and WFHB. I'm just saying. This is Pam Rader with an essay entitled Disease and Disease. We are suffering from more than one disease. We are suffering from generalized disease. The definition reads trouble or sickness or any departure from health, any harmful or destructive condition of society. Naturopaths tell us disease is a sign of bodily imbalance. Sickness symptoms are signs of the body's attempt to regain balance. Under the weight of the pandemic, our institutions fail and shrivel from lack of accountability. The already underlying dysfunction breaks out into open symptoms of dis-ease. The longer we carry on with unhealthy practices and denial, the more we will be attacked by climatic disasters and social unrest. The lingering feeling of malaise turns acute as the election creeps closer. Uncertainty, misinformation, and outright lies fuel distrust of media, government, experts, science, or anyone not of our tribe. People have different coping strategies. Some hide out and can't watch the news. Many deny reality because acknowledging the truth of our predicament is too frightening. Some blame others or follow someone who assures them they need not worry. Others escape into conspiracy theories, trying to make sense of a world gone mad. Some will fight, taking to the streets with their weapons, all in an attempt to assuage this deep feeling of dis-ease and the accompanying fears. We don't know how long this will last or if it will get worse. We don't know if a second wave is coming or if the virus will mutate. We can't talk to family, neighbors, or previous acquaintances, so vast are our differences. We don't know if the fires and hurricanes are a flare-up fluke or evidence of an exponential runaway cycle. Is the stock market stable or falsely propped up by the Fed? Heck, we don't know if we can get the general population to wear masks indoors this winter. And we don't know if life will ever return to normal. 2020, is it the beginning or the end? Or both? The events of this year, especially the results of this election, will decide which vision of the future will prevail. What formerly was largely a war of words has spilled into the streets. We are experiencing nothing less than a complete cultural shift whose outcome is uncertain. Dis-ease always comes with changing times, and when change is looming, there is always resistance and backlash. One germ can infect a body and be spread. One apple can spoil the barrel. One person can infest a country with mass psychosis. 
fall, a time of changing leaves and landscape, a time of reaping what we've sowed, a time of waning sunlight, memories of better days, and lost loved ones. As we watch leaves and berries fall to earth, once living crops meet cold ground, we know winter looms ahead. This is a natural cycle in nature. Rebirth comes after decay, when seeds lying dormant come to life again. Many cultures celebrate this meeting of life and death. October 31st, a day we call Halloween, is actually All Hallows' Eve, since November 1st was declared All Saints' Day and November 2nd dubbed All Souls' Day. Remember Night on Bald Mountain in the movie Fantasia? Spooky horrors gave way to peace. It is always darkest before the dawn. This state of impasse, the changing earth, the dissolving of our constitution and previous way of life will give way to a new beginning. A new balance will be struck. Halloween, a celebration of mask wearing and assumed identities, coincides with the celebration of the Day of the Dead. Death is not the end. The mayhem surrounding the Black Plague uprooted civilization, ending feudalism and making way for the Renaissance. Our failure to manage this crisis may be the last straw in trying to hang on to business as usual. I think we're all sensing this. In the swaying of the trees on dark nights, the moaning of the wind as they rub, it is easy to conjure up scary images. But we need look no further than our own kind to see the real ghouls and vampires, which we must face with courage. Much has been broken, yet some things will survive this winter of discontent. The new digital skills and technologies that join us now will allow a new world to arise from the ashes of this current state of affairs. The seeds never lose hope. This is Pam Rader for the Brown County Hour. Oxygen, heroin, and grass. Better slow down if you wanna move fast. Yuppies playing hicks, crying for the past. Careful what you wish, don't bite you in the ass. You better count your blessings before they're gone. I might just show up in your backyard with my fur strapped on. Take my hand, pretty girl. We can go to the clearing in the woods, through the snow where nothing good ever seems to grow. We can see the sky when the full moon glows. That same old feeling in our feet, rising up like the mercury, it transform us from men to beasts. Shouldn't creep men, watch out for the leaves. You better count your blessings before they're gone. I might come tapping at your window with my claws strapped on. Ah, ooh, whoa. 
life. Welcome out where we ain't all bibs and bullet hats. History costs a little more than that. And you only see what you want to see. Not this place or its poverty. Well, this is real life, not a fantasy. With all little more than we seem to be. Can I say I guess I'm going through a phase You better count your blessings before they're gone I might come knocking at your front door with my teeth Pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from listeners like you and the support of the Brown County Inn, a family-friendly getaway destination located in Nashville, Indiana, offering locally sourced food, drinks, and live entertainment with banquet space, indoor-outdoor pool, miniature golf, and more. Information and booking available at browncountyinn.com. Our final segment begins with our interview with Chris McDaniel, a paranormal researcher, as we talk to him about the mysterious Bigfoot in Brown County. Dave Seastrom shares his observations in an essay called A Year of COVID. And we'll close the show with John Whitcomb's song, Goblins. We hope you've enjoyed the music this month. You can contact our guests, The Hammer and the Hatchet, Chris Wolf, Joe Bollinger, and John Whitcomb on their Facebook pages and on links from our website, browncountyhour.com. Fall is upon us in Brown County, and it's time for you to see for yourself how Mother Nature has painted the hills this season. Take a moment and check out the Visitor Center's online leaf cam at browncounty.com. 
Visit that page and click the link for fall to see the camera and ways you can experience one of our favorite times of year. While you are on the browncounty.com site, be sure to look at the Seven Vistas Challenge photo opportunity. The Brown County State Park now has seven life-size picture frames on their famous vistas overlooking the hills and old growth forest. Post a photo of yourself at all seven vistas using the hashtag BC7VistaChallenge, then stop by the Brown County Visitors Center for an official Seven Vista Challenge sticker. Have fun, get creative, and enjoy one of the most magnificent forests in America as you take in the seven stunning views with your friends and family. As we enter autumn, the Brown County Hour likes to think of things that go bump in the night, or in tonight's case, things that may go bump in the woods. This is Chuck Wills along with Jim Lemon. Hi, Jim. Hey, guys. And we have the pleasure of speaking with Chris McDaniel, who is a paranormal researcher specializing in an array of fields, including general paranormal, UFOs, and cryptids, or what you may call Bigfoot. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I'd like to first talk about Bigfoot, since Brown County has a history of sightings and, and has all you know the Bigfoot habitat. This may be a new subject for our audience. If you could give us a little background on yourself and what you do relating to the elusive Sasquatch. I'm an author of two books. I've been featured on Monsters and Mysteries of America on the Discovery Channel. Uh, like you said, I'm a paranormal researcher, which Paranormal research is a wide variety of different topics, whether it's hauntings, cryptid creatures, uh, UFOs. So with the cryptid creatures, people uh, would send me emails and tell me about their encounters, and I would pretty much go out and take a look and see what I can find. So what got you into this research originally? Back in 1984, me and my friends had heard a legend about a ghost sighting in Step Cemetery. So we thought we'd go out there and check it out. And lo and behold, things started to happen. And uh, we seen an actual apparition of a lady, just like the legend says. Uh, from that point on, it got a little crazy and out of hand to where one of the individuals in the group started dabbling, uh, making like pentagrams in the gravel. With our own eyes, we watched this person fall down to the ground and their body just slid across the ground by itself, as if somebody had a hold of their shoulders and was dragging them off into the woods. Well, to make a long story short, we got him in the car, got him out of there, and it, it terrorized us enough that we had all these questions in our head, you know, how is this possible? But we didn't want to get involved with the hauntings anymore. But we wanted to talk to eyewitnesses, that had similar maybe encounter of some type sure. where I kind of turned toward cryptid investigations and so forth. And I also have a degree in wildlife uh, management, which steered me toward wildlife, Bigfoot, you know, cryptid animals that haven't been discovered yet. Anything that has to do with wildlife or cryptid creatures, you have my attention. Okay. Well, from my own experience, I'm sure it's much safer to go that direction because it's unlikely Bigfoot is going to show up at midnight in your basement. Right. Step Cemetery. Is that near Morgan Monroe State Forest? Yes, that, that's in the Morgan Monroe State Forest. And uh, actually, there's been reports of Bigfoot seen near Step Cemetery. Give me a little bit of background on some of the stories that you have heard or maybe things that you've investigated kind of around that area. 
that's where a lot of reports that I, I get come from. There's a case I call the, the case of the dead coyote. And this is right on the Bartholomew and Brown County line. This is probably about four years ago. Some people were out at their bonfire and they noticed a tall figure. They couldn't make out any features, but it was standing behind a tree and kept stepping out, peeking at them. And they said there was an eerie feeling about this. You know, even in the air, they said, you could just feel that something eerie was going on. So they contacted me and I went out to their house looked around the area where the tree was. I, I didn't see anything, but I went on down the road and uh, less than a quarter of a mile is the power line clearings. Yeah. And I thought I'd walk this uh, power line clearings because in most cases, 95 times out of a hundred, I can ask an eyewitness how far is the power line clearings. And it's always less than a quarter of a mile. Amazing. Interesting. Amazing. Yeah. And that's 95 times out of 100. So the, the theory is people believe that they may use this like a highway. Yeah. It's easier to travel in an open clearing than it is to travel through a, a thick wooded area. Sure. Yeah. The underbrush, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I went ahead and I started walking the power line clearing. And it was probably about 100 yards off the road, the dirt road, that I had found a dead coyote. And I have pictures of this coyote. I I even have a video of it. The coyote had a footprint on it, a muddy footprint, and it was huge. Wow. This coyote, you know, he, he's dead. And he felt squishy. So I'm looking around the area, and lo and behold, I find a footprint in the mud uh, that has toes. And I'm wondering who in the world would have been out here barefooted. <laughs> so I went ahead and I, I collected the coyote took pictures of the footprint. I took it to a veterinarian's office and I asked them if they would do a neocropsy on it and tell mm -hmm. me what they think the coyote may have died from. I took video and this is on YouTube, so you can actually watch the whole video of them doing the neocropsy of the coyote. The best that they can determine is that it was blunt force to the ribs. And I asked them if a car had hit that coyote, would that coyote be able to travel? And they said it was instant death. Whatever wow. hit this coyote was instant death. What's strange is they found a piece of metal inside the coyote, and they had no idea what this was. I, I went ahead and I collected the, the piece of metal. Now, I know the uh, head people of MUFON here in Indiana chapter, they get a lot of reports of UFOs and Bigfoot sightings together, and they were concerned that it might be some type of a, a trace or something. What became of that piece of metal? You know, I have no idea. I put it okay. in a drawer, and I've not been able to find it for uh, about a year or so. Wow. That, that, that's a mystery in itself, then. Yeah. <laughs> One of my uh, most favorite stories, I didn't actually talk to the individual. This is a story that was passed down from a park ranger an individual that I knew that also did Bigfoot research. That uh, this individual, this is around uh, Brown County, near Story, Indiana. Uh, okay. This individual, their kids had had a female cat, and she just kept kept having litter after litter after litter. And uh, this guy was getting tired of all these kittens, trying to find homes for the kittens. So this last litter that she had had, he took like I think maybe a couple of the kittens that they couldn't find homes for with that. When his kids were at school, he picked up the kittens and he went out into the woods with, them. he was going to take care of the kittens himself. 
out in the, the middle of the woods. He found a place where there was a big rock. He set the kittens down and he picked up the big rock. And as he's lifting the rock, he looks up and there's this big, hairy, bipedal creature, Bigfoot, standing in front of him. Bigfoot steps up to him, pushes him down. The guy falls down. The guy wets himself in the process. And what's really funny is, according to this report, that Bigfoot starts scolding him, pointing his finger, and was grunting and making all kinds of noises, going, ur, 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 like a language to him. Picked up the kittens. Bigfoot picks up the kittens and took off walking away. <laughs> so if, if there's no any way. truth to that story, that's the best Bigfoot story I've ever heard. <laughs> so I got scolded by a Bigfoot is a classic <laughs> magazine uh, title, I think. <laughs> oh my gosh. So Bigfoot has a moral compass. Yep. <laughs> you must. Absolutely. That is incredible. <laughs> more so than the guy. Yeah. We have much more of our interview with paranormal researcher Chris McDaniel that will be featured on our upcoming Halloween special podcast. If you want to hear more about Bigfoot, Mothman, the Wolfman, and hauntings, check it out on our website, browncountyhour.com, and subscribe to our podcast. It's hard to imagine how quickly this year of COVID-19 is passing. I'm writing this essay on the fall equinox, and it was just six months ago that the world shut down shortly after the spring equinox. The onset of spring brought uncertainty, and as the number of cases increased, most of us were wondering what was safe and what wasn't. Those of us that could stayed home, and we only went out for necessities. Eventually, we understood the best way to prevent the spread of this virus is to wear a mask when we're in public and wash our hands every chance we get. As the days move slowly past, many of them seem the same. But through it all, the seasons continue to advance, and here we are at the beginning of fall. We still don't know what's going on with this virus, and maybe that's just the way it's going to be for the foreseeable future. We lived through the toilet paper panic, and many of us have figured out good recipes for all those dried beans we bought. Terms like social distancing have become part of the language, and very few of us shake hands or give our family and friends a hug when we see them. We're still struggling to find safe ways to interact. For the most part, we've decided that masking up and going to the grocery store or to a local farmer's market is safe. But the jury is out on eating inside a restaurant or attending a sporting event. Fall in Brown County brings hordes of tourists who come for the beauty of our fall colors and to get out of the city for a little while. Lots of them go to our state park to camp and hike or just drive through the beautiful hills to take in the scenery. One can hardly blame them. After all, there's nothing like being in nature to soothe the anxiety so many of us are facing right now. It will be interesting to see how the tourists behave with the COVID restrictions the governor's imposed. We are supposed to wear masks when we're in public, but from what I've observed, very few of them do. Many of our shopkeepers have strict rules about wearing masks in their place of business because they want to protect themselves and the public. However, we do have a few holdouts who insist that wearing a mask violates their rights and they won't be caught dead in one. Curiously, they may be caught dead if they don't wear one. Perhaps this year will be remembered most for the outcome of the election. 
But when the stories of 2020 are told, it will also be remembered as the year when almost every cultural event was canceled. In Brown County alone, the list includes the Spring Blossom Parade, the 4-H County Fair, the Abe Martin Outhouse Race, and countless events at the Brown County Music and History Centers. We still don't know if the kids will be allowed to roam the streets of Nashville trick-or-treating during Halloween, and there's still no telling what will happen to the music scene when they have to move indoors as the weather changes. In spite of the obstacles, music venues are slowly opening up, although most of them are outside, and Brown County hosted a successful All Lives Matter event that brought many people from all over the county together in a peaceful expression of solidarity. The restaurants are open, and the Brown County Playhouse is hosting movies and a few live events with limited seating. On top of everything else, we're in the middle of an extended drought. We haven't had a substantial rain since July, and right now the forest is as dry as a bone. Many of the leaves are dropping from the trees, and we're holding out hope that the fall rains will come in time for a beautiful color display. So at least on the surface, life is returning to normal. Only, we're not there yet. Indications are pointing to a possible resurgence of COVID-19 just as the flu season gets underway. And many of us are concerned we may have to face another lockdown if things heat up again. Mostly, these events affect only the humans. The hills and the valleys remain the same, and the forest continues to flourish. If nothing else comes from this crazy year, perhaps we'll have the opportunity to reflect on who we are as a species, and the importance of working together to solve a mutual problem. Humans are just one component of nature, and even though we think we're at the top of the heap, there's plenty of evidence that tells us life is a mosaic, and each life form plays its integral part. Oh sure, we have our stuff, and we're gobbling up our resources like crazy to produce even more. But this is putting a strain on our environment, which might contribute to future virus outbreaks becoming even worse. One final thought. Most of our decisions regarding the care and preservation of nature are based on money, which in and of itself won't feed or warm us. But nature will, if we learn to hold her in proper regard. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. Little orphan Annie's come to our house to stay to Wash the cups and sauces up and brush the pool away Choose the chicken, dump the porch and just the hot and sweet Make the fire, make the bed and find a bowl and keep And all those other children when the supper things is done Sits around the kitchen fire and has the most fun Listen to the witch's tale Annie tells about And the goblins will get ya If you don't watch out Once there was a little boy who wouldn't say his prayers When he went to bed at night, way upstairs His mommy and his mother, his daddy and his ball And when they turned the keepers back, he wasn't there at all They searched him in the rat to room, covey hole and prayers Even up the chimney, and everywhere I guess All he ever found was his pants and round about And the garbage would get you If you don't watch out Once when there was company, 
said she didn't care Just as she clicked her heels to turn and run and hide There were two little evil things standing by the side She snapped her through the seat and all she knows what she's about The goblins will get you If you don't watch out Thanks for tuning in to episode 103 of the Brown County Hour, recorded remotely and in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. and anytime online. Be sure to look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe now... More than ever, the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh